Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On the Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granosky gluskin Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. Today, we have something special for you. On September 24th, I interviewed Alberta Premier Jason Kenney in what will be one of his final as Premier at the Canada Strong and Free Network's regional conference in Red Deer. Our onstage conversation, which was before the 250 or so attendees of the conference, covered a wide range of topics, including immigration and identity, the rise of so-called woke politics, his government's policy record, the state of Canadian conservatism, and his own mark on Canadian life. We're honored to bring that conversation to you as a hub dialogue. I want to thank the Canada Strong and Free Network, as well as Jason Kenney. The next voice you'll hear is mine in conversation with Alberta Premier Jason Kenney. Emphasize that um, we've not talked about this conversation um, before. Uh, The Premier doesn't know uh, what questions I'm, I'm going to put to him. It reminds me of one of my favorite podcasts. I don't know if people are familiar with Tyler Cowen's podcast, Conversations with Tyler. In his introduction, he says, this is the conversation I want to have. And in a way, this is the conversation that I want to have uh, with Premier Kenny. Um, Most people here will know that last week you flew to London to wait in the queue to recognize and honor the Queen. Why did you go? And what's, what's the place of the constitutional monarchy in your worldview? Well, uh, what people don't know is I do that even though I'm a Jacobite. <laughs> Sorry, that's an inside joke. Um, I, you know, this is something I imagine doing. I've, I've always been, since I was a teenager, uh, devoted uh, to the crown, uh, to the constitutional monarchy, and to the person of our, the late Queen Elizabeth II, who, first of all, why did I go? I just felt compelled. Uh, as I said, it's like losing, for, at least for me, a grandmother or a longtime friend, uh, somebody who's been part of your life, the background of your life for all of us, and uh, who has been this uh, single, singular example of dignified public service without any of the rubbish that comes with politics um, and uh, a truly magnificent example of a patriotism, of devotion, um, and maybe because I'm a conservative, although I really believe that the, the, the institution transcends that. And by the way, Rachel Notley, to her great credit, gave a beautiful tribute uh, to Queen Elizabeth in the legislature last week. Uh, and so I'm not, I'm not trying to situate this uh, in a political sense, but um, in this world of a, what I said in my tribute was, Think about this. Her first British Prime Minister, Sir Winston Churchill, born in 1870. Her last British Prime Minister, the one she swore in 36 hours before dying, 
1972. Mm. So uh, Elizabeth spanned uh, from the Victorian era to the Space Age. And tumultuous changes in economic, social, geopolitical, cultural uh, changes. And, and yet somehow had the wisdom to navigate that um, in a way that I think perfectly reflects the vision of Burkean conservatism, which is a reverence for uh, the received wisdom of the past, G.K. Chesterton's idea of tradition being the democracy of the dead, but also Gustav Mahler's idea that tradition is not the worship of ashes, but the preservation of fire. A, a dynamic tradition, a tradition that can evolve in the Burkean vision. And I think she just nailed it. We talk a lot about that theoretically. She personified th those ideas. So how could I not go? Uh, was my idea, and um, it was it was a wonderful experience. If it was for me a pilgrimage of sorts, and I, I think uh, I suspect that was the sense of almost everyone in that queue. It, it actually reminded me. Most of us, I don't know, before the schools went woke, we used to study uh, Chaucer's uh, Canterbury Tales in high school, and Canterbury Tales are a story of people of all social classes together in a in common purpose on a pilgrimage in England to Canterbury, to the uh, grave of uh, St. Thomas of Becket. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's about this amazing mishmash of society and the, the exchanges they have, but all of them the, in the great equalizer of the humility of their pilgrimage. And I saw that. I mean, I remember seeing one guy wearing top hat and tails in full morning clothes for 15 hours, and it wasn't uh, William Rees-Mogg, it wasn't uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, standing next to a chap who was, had a full Mohawk haircut in the queue. And I thought, you know, so the, 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 the queue was uh, more diverse than England, less diverse than London, but it was still remarkably diverse depiction of a modern society that reveres a woman who preserved and respected what was very best uh, about our customs and traditions. It's a good segue, Premier, to the next question I want to put to you. Um, as you say, we've seen this outpouring of emotion and sadness about the Queen's passing, and it's made me think a bit about the importance of shared symbols, institutions, and ideas. You're a great champion of immigration and pluralism, but as our country becomes more diverse, how important is it that we recommit ourselves to a, a common citizenship and what should we be doing in order to ensure that we don't become a hotel society, yeah. that we remain, as Roger Scruton put it, a home society? Well put. You, you've just kind of summed up what was my vision uh, for nine years as Canada's multiculturalism minister and for five of those years as minister of citizenship and immigration. I always used to begin by saying that um, Canada, fortunately, is one of the only countries in the developed world that does not have a, a strong or organized uh, anti-immigrant sentiment uh, or movement. But I said, we cannot take that for granted. We cannot take for granted the success of our model of pluralism. And by the way, the founders of English Canada, the United Empire Loyalists, their motto, their, their informal motto was unity in diversity. Mm. And, and that, it, it, coming back to the crown, I mean, that the genius of British imperialism, now represented in the, its vestige of the Commonwealth, is that idea of unity in diversity. There were wrong, there were injustices uh, and crimes committed under the authority of the British Empire, no doubt. But there was also uh, uh, it, 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 remarkable achievements, not, not, not the least of which 
was leading the world in the abolition of slavery and the employment of the Royal Navy to, uh, to end the, the transatlantic uh, slave trade. But the point is this, um, we inherited from that, that, that British tradition, we inherited a real sense of pluralism. The Quebec Act, one of the reasons the, the, our American friends uh, rose up in a revolution against the crown is because they, they couldn't tolerate the tolerance of French Catholics embedded in the Quebec Act. And they wanted to assimilate and eff effectively uh, oppress the Catholic minority. It was enlightened well ahead of its time. And so we've inherited that tradition of unity and diversity of pluralism. It's, it's just, it's in our, it, it, it's part of our political DNA in this country. Uh, but we can't take it for granted. And my concern when I became minister for those uh, areas was that we do see growing evidence of um, uh, ghettoization in Canadian society. Of, uh, and nobody chooses to immigrate to this country in order to recreate the country that they have left. They come here to become Canadian. Of course, to pursue opportunity, but understanding implicitly that what makes this country attractive is a unique set of institutions and values, the rule of law, uh, uh, free markets, um, the parliamentary government, uh, which come from a particular historical context. Uh, and what concerns me about increasingly liberal wokeness, but, but even just garden variety liberalism 20 years ago, is, is this, this notion that, that we have to deracinate, pull up from our, the, the roots, all of those institutions, traditions, and customs that made our society such an attractive place to become, where to, for people to become Canadian. And that's why I focused very practically on things like, uh, well, first of all, uh, ensuring that the selection criteria for economic immigrants was aligned with the, based on the data of the, those characteristics most likely to lead to successful integration. You cannot have cultural and, so and social integration, a big problem in Europe, unless you have successful economic integration. If people are stuck outside of the, the, oppor the opportunity society, in, in, in resenting the fact that they are per, per constantly underemployed, stuck in survival jobs, frustrated, unable to employ their skills, they're not going to be quickly become patriotic and engaged citizens. So knocking down barriers to economic inclusion, critically important, things like language proficiency really matter, but also civic literacy. So I upped the bar on um, knowledge of Canada, uh, of, our, of our history, traditions, customs, institutions. We wrote a new citizenship guide called Discover Canada. Thank God Trudeau still hasn't, has not yet uh, replaced it. You can only imagine what his replacement would look like. Um, the, the, uh, and we also cracked down when I was immigration minister on the whole spectrum of immigration fraud uh, because I believe that you can only maintain support for a generous legal immigration program if the, if the side window and the back door are shut and people are required to come uh, uh, lawfully through the front door. So I think those were, those were important changes, but I, I regret to see now uh, the velocity of liberal wokeness, um, which is essentially telling newcomers that they should, that in fact they should be ashamed of Canada's past or history and institutions. I, I'll come to, to wokeness in a minute, but let's just stay on the topic of immigration. As you mentioned, Premier, the British Conservative Party just went through a leadership race, and the runner-up, Rishi Sunak, uh, wrote back in 2014 an article about how you represented the future of Anglosphere conservatism 
three efforts to effectively create links between conservative politics and immigrant populations. I guess two questions. One, what was your great insight? And today, what should conservatives be doing to ensure that new Canadians continue to see themselves in conservative ideas and conservative values? Well, I'm glad you found that. And just let me start by saying that, that Rishi is a good friend. Uh, and I was, um, when the British Tories saw our enormous success in the Harper Conservative Party in winning the support of newcomers, uh, they were fascinated and they really wanted to, to replicate it. Because in the 2011 election where Stephen won his majority, uh, we actually won a higher percentage of votes of people born abroad than people born in Canada. Hmm. And uh, that shocked the media and the Liberals. It didn't happen easily. It didn't happen by accident. It was, it was years of hard work to develop the relationships of trust so that we could communicate to new Canadians and cultural communities on their naturally intuitive conservative values, right? And uh, so I went over, to, they, they had me over to 10 Downing Street two or three times to lead seminars with, with MPs and senior political staff um, uh, during Prime Minister Cameron's uh, tenure and Rishi Sunak, and, and in fact, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, Priti Patel, and half the British cabinet were very involved in that. And I'm just so glad to see how they have emerged as, as the new generation of principled conservative leadership in the United Kingdom. Um, what we, basically, the insight here was this, that the, the very decision to immigrate is an entrepreneurial risk-taking decision to leave behind what's familiar, to take a chance on something that's completely uncertain and new. And of course, most new Canadians have a remarkable work. I think they're twice as likely to start a small business as somebody born in this country. So naturally entrepreneurial, therefore naturally great Albertans. Um, and devoted to family, respectful of tradition very typically, very higher levels of religious observance, intolerance of criminality and social disorder, very often aligned with conservative uh, values on foreign policy because so many newcomers have fled, um, uh, have fled authoritarian, communist, or corrupt regimes and seek the rule of law, the prote its protection. Um, and so on the full spectrum of issues, social, cultural, economic, foreign policy, criminal justice, naturally conservative. But conservatives weren't showing up and creating the relationships. My favorite anecdote, when I was starting that project, I met with leaders of the Korean uh, community in Vancouver to, to ask them, you know, what, what, what are your main issues? Why, how can we engage you? And uh, right off the top, you know, people from, of Korean background are typically very blunt, which I love about them. And Dr. Shin, who was the uh, patriarch of the community in Vancouver, said to me, you know, Minister, before you came in, we were chatting and wondering why you want to meet with us. Because we, we agreed none of us has ever met a conservative in, before. And all we've ever heard about you is that you folks are, are racist and anti-immigrant. I said, wow, doctor, well, thank you for breaking the ice. <laughs> Let's take that on. And I spent the next 10 minutes explaining how that was so radically untrue. Brian Laroni ran higher immigration levels and Pierre Trudeau cut immigration by two thirds. Almost all of the firsts in terms of breakthroughs for people of different ethnic backgrounds came through the conservative political tradition, et cetera. And, and then I said, but let me turn this back on you. Why have you never been involved in a party that's so closely aligned with your values? They said, well, actually, when we most of us vote NDP. I said, Koreans voting for the NDP is like chickens voting for Colonel Sanders. <laughs> This doesn't make any sense. They said, well, when we, when we first got to Canada, we moved to where there was you know, affordable housing. 
then in Burnaby in the early 70s, and the local NDP member of parliament, uh, when we invited him to our events, he showed up. And he helped us get zoning for our first church. And he helped us with our immigration case files. And he, when his assistant became the MP, we had a pre-existing relationship with him. And it was my eureka moment. You know, uh, sometimes those of us in politics or those of you guys in think tanks overthink these things. Sometimes it's just very obvious human relationships. How do you communicate shared values to somebody with whom you have no relationship? So my, uh, uh, my message to next generation conservatives is you have to take the time. And it doesn't mean showing up and making a token effort six months before an election. If you don't mind my saying, I think that's what the last two or three uh, federal conservative campaigns have looked, looked like in terms of outreach, despite some people's good efforts. It has to be not a, um, a kind of sidebar. It has to be integrated into everything a conservative party or government does. Uh, let's turn to Alberta now. Um, when you were thinking about coming home and running in provincial politics, I think it's fair to say you were keen to advance what you might describe as a reform conservative agenda focused on issues like work, family, and civil society. But as the economic conditions worsened, you needed to reorient your focus to a more conventional supply side agenda. Um, do you want to talk a bit about that pivot and maybe how conservatives ought to think about synthesizing new in old ideas in, in terms of developing a policy program. Yeah, and just to clarify terms, I think when you use the term reform conservatives, you don't mean necessarily reform party, Western Canadian populism, as much as uh, the new school of thought that says that conservatives should be focused on social mobility uh, and addressing the needs of, of working class, class people who have too often been the victims of trends like globalization and automation, et cetera, right? And, and it's a response, I mean, I'm sure everybody in this room understands, it's a response of a new, of new generation of conservative thinkers to what had become a kind of tired um, uh, repertoire, policy repertoire of, in, of American conservative politics, which was just to constantly replay the Ronald Reagan 1980 platform, um, always you know, using 40-year-old solutions to completely different problems. So I, I've, been, I've followed and your work and the work of, of some of your, your friends in the US, and some of whom are Canadians, right? like Yuval Levine, I think, yes. and, and others. Um, and we're really fascinated by that. And so I wanted to set out in our 2019 platform with some very strong uh, reform conservative themes focused on social mobility. But we, you know, when we got right down into the details, realized a couple of things. First of all, in Alberta, we, had all, we were well ahead. Uh, the, the, Alberta was well ahead of the curve on many of those, those themes. Why? Because we had the wealth and the fiscal capacity to build an incredibly progressive system, a tax and benefit system. So, you know, our, our basic personal exemption, you don't pay a dime in provincial income tax until you make nearly $20,000 now. And, um, and, and so, uh, there was very little we could do uh, uh, to, uh, to help people in, the, in that sort of struggling segment of the population. Um, but what we had seen under the NDP here was a massive outflow of investment and capital. And so I guess, I, I, again, you, this is my advice to conservatives. Address real current problems. Don't, what we as conservatives, we believe that conservatism is a disposition 
not a prepackaged uh, ideological uh, bunch of, of, of policy remedies, right? So come up with solutions to the real problems that currently exist. The real problem that we encountered three, four years ago was this massive outflow of capital, lack of investment confidence, and just macroeconomic decline. Our, our GDP was down 15% um, from 2014-15. Uh, from so we instead decided with the limited fiscal capacity that we had to focus on what you might call more traditional conservative or neoliberal economic solutions like reducing the business tax rate to bring, uh, to stimulate the economy, stimulate investment. Now that's where, with limited room, that's where we put our, our emphasis as deregulation, reducing uh, the business tax rate. And uh, while maintaining a very progressive system of benefits and, 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 and personal taxes. And I think this, is, this has been vindicated because we, we, we've seen this huge economic turnaround in Alberta. It is not simply because of commodity prices. My critics would like to um, sim oversimplify it. The fact is, you know, we've created 200,000 net new jobs since the beginning of last year, fewer than 15% of which have been in primary oil and gas. Uh, drilling and activity in the conventional basin is up. Good to see. Some employment is up there. But there's been no new greenfield um, uh, upstream developments in the oil sands. And be, for, for reasons we can get into, so 85, more than that, no, over 90% of the net job growth in the past 20 months here have been in other sectors. About $150 billion of new investment, massively it not related directly to oil and gas. Um, and so uh, we are in the midst of, I think, an economic renaissance in this problem, province. And I think um, the policy uh, focus we had in our platform was just right. You're one click away from getting access to all The Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. You've mentioned a couple times in our conversation so far um, the shift on the, from, on the a part of the left from a class-based, a set of class-based economic concerns to a growing focus on issues of culture and identity, what, as you, as you say, often is described as so-called wokeism. Um, what are the opportunities and challenges here for a conservative's premier? Is opposing identity politics a winner for Canadian conservatives? Uh, it can be, but uh, proceed with caution. In that, to go back to what we discussed earlier, my time as Minister of Immigration, Multiculturalism, Citizenship, when I was, it, it, I, I frankly, taking a huge political risk to challenge many of the liberal shibboleths and the conventional wisdom in this country, people thought I was crazy, that immigration politics is the third rail, touch it and you die. And here I was calling out things like ghettoization, ethnic enclaves, a lack of integration, uh, immigration fraud, a lack of civic literacy. Uh, I was uh, calling for, in fact, I persuaded Stephen to give my, my first title in government was Minister of Multiculturalism and Canadian Identity. Mm 
uh, because I, I, I wanted to advance uh, um, a shared appreciation for our, our, our institutions and our history. So, uh, and I, and, and Sean, I, I did some things that were um, contentious, but still, um, were, I would say, uh, politically successful, including especially in new, new Canadian communities. And I'll give you one example. Um, I took a position that when people took a public oath of allegiance to the country in a citizenship court in front of a judge and their fellow citizens, that they ought to do so publicly and that it was inappropriate for their faces to be obscured for the 30 seconds of that public oath. I thought that, but I, I also took the position that the government broadly ought not to regulate what people wear in their private lives. So I have always opposed French-style niqab bans, but I said when there are certain moments when a, when a person is interacting with the state, and particularly a public oath, it's reasonable to ask that they do so with their faces uncovered. Now, I didn't overplay that. We announced that at an event hosted by Muslim women in Montreal who had asked for that policy. And uh, in fact, I was criticized by much of the Quebec media for not going further. Um, but at the same time, Sean, at the same time, as a Harper minister, I threatened to sue the then PQ government of Pauline Marois if they passed their Quebec uh, value of, uh, Charter of uh, Values, which was a version of uh, François Legault's um, ban on ostensible religious science. So I was, I think, in, the, in my view, in the sweet spot of defending pluralism, re religious freedom, personal liberty, but saying, you know, we can make uh, reasonable requests of people at certain times. And I did all of that. There was no great contention. But then, uh, later on, I would argue, uh, others were seen to be bludgeoning this issue, trying to turn it into a point of social division, of political exploitation. And I think the public is always very attuned to what your motives are on these issues. So if conservatives enter into the... Uh, and I, by the way, it's not conservatives who are the uh, aggressors in the culture wars. Yes. It's the, the conservatives are the def, uh, are the respondents yes. in the culture war. Let's be clear about that. So, if people involved in conservative politics decide to get engaged in stopping some of the craziness, most astonishing example this uh, in this high school at Oakville right now, um, then they ha I think they have to be seen to be doing so thoughtfully prudently and not as a tool of social division. I think where some of our, uh, some of the Republicans in the United States uh, um, are seen to be crassly exploiting some of these issues, going too far, and they therefore, I think, risk losing mainstream public support. Uh, it's a good segue, the subject of going too far is, is a good segue to my next question. Um, a couple of attendees mentioned to me yesterday that they thought the Harper government was, in hindsight, too incrementalist, that it didn't pursue enough big and lasting reforms. You've been criticized in Alberta for the opposite, for being too ambitious in your policy reforms. What would you say to that criticism, and how should conservatives think about the tension between incremental and transformational reform? Great question. I think it, it, it comes back to, to the context. Again, I'm going to come back to my Burkean theme, which is... Um, which I, when I was a younger guy, I don't think I fully appreciated. I was a young ideological firebrand. 
and um, you know, wanted to go to 10 out of 10 on every issue all the time when I was at the Taxpayers Federation, for example. Uh, but uh, with the benefit of, of experience, uh, I, I think I've learned the great wisdom of that, that, that idea of Michael Oakeshott, of Roger Scruton, rooted in Burke, that conservatism is a disposition, not an ideology. Um, and with respect, that is where I think, at least I part ways with some of our libertarian friends who tend to look at things through very ideological lens, um, which is often, I think, disconnected from reality and the aspirations of ordinary people, therefore voters. So I think that, that in this, in, on, the, on your particular question here, yeah, we, we published an insanely ambitious uh, platform. It was ridiculous. 300 and I think it was a 376 platform commitments. It was like an encyclopedia. And, and you're not supposed to do that. We could have won that election, I think, fairly easily, again, just by talking about the NDP's disastrous economic record and saying we're going to create jobs. Like it could have been a facile, I mean, like a Ralph Klein style campaign. Just roll around and be happy and have the odd beer and show up at the odd event. Um, uh, no, not to diminish, diminish their policy ambition, but, but they didn't campaign. You go back and look at his, 20, his 1993 campaign, they didn't campaign on a, a, you know, a, a, a ambitious program of conservative policy reform. It, the slogan was, he listens, he cares. Um, so we could have done that. But I wanted us, I mean, I knew we needed to make dramatic reforms to get this economy back on track, first and foremost. And... I wanted to have a very clear mandate with marching orders for ministers and the public service with a work program um, because I know in government, the great, one of the greatest enemies of being in government is stasis. It is, it is getting bogged down in process. It's paralysis, it's analysis paralysis, right? And you, you need, I, one of my, uh, great inspirations in, 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 in my political career was Sir Roger Douglas, who was the Labour Finance Minister in the New Zealand government in the late 1980s. And some of you will remember that he really led the, probably the most transformational changes in any modern developed uh, liberal democracy in the post-war period to ch take a sclerotic, failed welfare state that had hit the debt wall in New Zealand and turn it and, and, and radically reform almost everything. And what I learned from Sir Roger, working with him in the early 1990s when I was with the Taxpayers Federation was, you have to move so quickly that there's, your opponents can't rally opposition internally or externally on any particular issue. You just need to move forward at great speed, effectively destabilizing the established interests in implementing a reform agenda. Mm -hmm. That's why we came up with such a bold... Uh, uh, now, in Stephen's defense, he's dealing with a totally different electorate. You know, I, I thought in Alberta, uh, evidence of this was the Klein reforms, which were rewarded with successive majority mandates. And I don't think that would have been the case for Stephen if he said, I'm going to be the ideological firebrand from Calgary that completely changes everything in government in record time. I don't think that would have addressed the political... Um, temperament of the, the, the famous Ontario suburban swing voter. <laughs> um, 
obviously the pandemic proved to be all-consuming for your government as well as others around the world. But staying on the topic of ambitious policy reform, uh, had there been no pandemic, which area of, of policy would you have advanced more aggressively? In other words, what were the opportunity costs from a reform point of view of this once-in-a-century pandemic? Well, first of all, I, I, I'll get to, to what more could we or should we have done or do, but we have implemented completely or substantially 90% of those 367 platform commitments. Uh, and, and there are some that for fiscal or legal reasons we, we, we could never uh, get to, uh, but, but, you know, we'll be, you know, this, this government will be close to 95% of platform completion. Despite multiple once-in-a-century crises, public health crisis, collapse of the global economy, and a total catastrophic collapse of energy prices. Um, so we never down tools. In fact, our, we have passed more legislation in three years than uh, we've passed twice as much legislation in three years than, all, than the average of Alberta governments do in a four-year term. Our cabinet has met three times more often in the past three years than is typical for a government in that same period of time. A lot of that was COVID, but an enormous amount of it was actually just moving the policy wheels, grinding away at this implementation of this PAP platform. So I'm really proud of, of what my colleagues have done, what our team has done. Um, I think one area that we held back on for obvious reasons was, was deeper healthcare reform. We are moving forward with our chartered surgical initiative, which is to massively expand the number of surgeries that we contract out to the private sector uh, that will be publicly insured. But we could have gone further and deeper into health reform had it not been uh, for COVID. And I think Canadians are now waking up to the reality that we do need fundamental health reform with the um, dysfunction of the, uh, the ration state monopoly across uh, the country. Um, so that would be one area. I would say, um, you know, and, and the other things... <laughs> We've taken the initial steps towards creating an Alberta provincial pension plan. I'm a huge believer in, the, in that as, a, as an opportunity for us to, um, to fully realize 50 years of an enormous demographic advantage that we have. And, you know, if the Federation is a policy laboratory, then, we, then Alberta is a winner because we've chosen pro-growth policies. Mm -hmm. And that has tr attracted a younger working population. And that could be reflected in both significantly lower premiums and higher benefits for retirees if we were to patriate that. But that's a multi-year project, and I hope the future government will pursue that as well as police, provincial police service. Um, otherwise, Sean, I would just say that we have planted and tended the seeds of deep, significant policy reform, the benefits of which we are now beginning to see. Now, I, I, you know, I, was, I never intended to be here for a long time, I, I, frankly. It was always my intention, if, we'd, if I'd gone on to the next election, to leave probably about a year to 18 months after that. I was never intending to be in this gig for a long time. Um, and, and so the, uh, the, the temptation to stick around and stick around and stick around, because there's always something more, there's always a, a reason to stick around too long, but we're starting to see it like a school choice. Uh, we passed the School Choice Act. We lifted the cap on charter schools. We, re re we brought back parental authority into the education system, the curriculum forms that at Red Deer's Adriana LaGrange is courageously and brilliantly leading. Um, well, we now have five new charter schools starting in the province. We have a STEM charter academy. We have a classical charter academy. And I think some of those people are here. Uh, those are hugely important. 
I, I would love to see not five new charter schools. I'd love to see 50 new charter schools. And I think that we'll, the, the momentum is starting on uh, the, our recovery-oriented system of care, which is our compassionate, conservative alternative to the left's obsession with destigmatizing lethal drug use uh, through their single-minded obsession on harm reduction, so-called harm reduction. Well, only Alberta has developed a compassionate, conservative alternative. And I'm pleased to report that opioid deaths in this province are down by 45% over the past year. They are one half the per capita incidence of opioid deaths in British Columbia, where they keep redoubling their efforts to facilitate lethal drug use. Um, and now, we, but, but our efforts there are still at the beginning. It's a multi-year program to really scale up a seamless system of, of a recovery-oriented system of care from detox to treatment to lifetime uh, recovery. So I hope that whatever happens here politically, that those, I think, very exciting uh, uh, cons cons policy, conservative policy reforms will continue, and Alberta will once again be able to lead Canada and show the way forward. Uh, you, you're a movement conservative who spent most of your life in the world of big C and small c Canadian conservatism. Uh, maybe I'll just ask you to reflect on the state of conservatism and have you respond to this observation. Um, it feels to me like the, the conservatism of mourning in America uh, is being replaced with the conservatism of American carnage, um, not just the United States, but really across the Anglo-American world. Do you agree or disagree? And either way, what do you think is behind some of these trends? Yeah, I do agree. I used to joke in the last, in the 2016 US primaries that uh, Ted Cruz somehow man would, could manage to make morning in America sound like a threat rather than a promise. Um, and we have gone from uh, a, a, a friendly conservative populism. Think of the populism of, of say, Ralph Klein, yes. um, which is basically just a healthy respect for, to quote Preston Manning, the common sense of common people and maybe a, a healthy distrust of elite opinion. If that's what populism is, then I probably am a populist. But unfortunately, uh, what we are seeing from the United States and perhaps emanating into Canadian politics is uh, populism with a snarl. And, um, and that concerns me greatly. Uh, Sean, when I was uh, president of the Taxpayers Federation in my early 20s here, when we would go door to door, let's say here in central Alberta to raise funds, Every now and then, we'd come across some crazy old coot talking about the international Jewish banking conspiracy. And, uh, but and when I think back on that, I mean, and remember, those are the days of, uh, of, of, of uh, Jim Keegstra and all of that. If those guys wrote a letter to the local paper, to the Red Advocate, it wouldn't get published. Social media comes along 20 years ago and allows people with those kinds of attitudes to self-publish and then to find a virtual community online and then uh, to uh, push each other into uh, a constant state of anger. Then liberal mainstream legacy media uh, almost went out of their way to become disaffected from almost everybody right of center. And I'm talking even moderate red Tories who I think instinctively distrust most mainstream legacy media outlets. Now understandably, that's the responsibility of these media outlets. Um, 
And so what's happened, we've had the advent of alt-right media to fill that market. And for many of them, their business model is the monetization of anger. And the revenue only flows if people are angrier and angrier. Then you take Donald Trump, um, who validates anger. And there are reasons for people to be frustrated. We ought not to, to diminish that. But if the response is just constantly driving people into ever more uh, higher levels of agitation, this is not healthy uh, for our society. And it's certainly not conservatism. It's not a respect for our institutions. For, um, you know, I, I know this is an old-fashioned sentiment, but I actually believe civility is a conservative value. And there is a growing, a growing sense of profound incivility. And uh, it, it concerns me greatly. So I, I hope that um, we can, that, 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 that conservatives, because COVID hypercharged all of that. You take the toxic stew of social media, alt-right media, uh, Trumpian ang anger, and then add, add in COVID and all of it. And you end up in a situation where uh, what is winsome and appealing about conservatism as the philosophy that, that best understands human nature, that offers the best and most practical solutions to real uh, uh, problems, could I think just become a caricature of, um, a, 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 of, of a kind of nasty, angry populism that we'll lose consistently at the polls as well. Um, Premier, we don't have that much time left. I'm sensitive uh, uh, that there committed to a, a schedule. I just have a few more questions. Is, is, that, is that okay? Rapid fire, sure. Um, between two leadership races and, and more than three years as premier, you got to travel the province and probably meet more Albertans than basically anyone. Um, based on that experience, how has the province changed over the years? Is it less conservative? Well, um, it's, it's different. Uh, this province is, you know, from the days I was the CTF, it become far more urban. Um, and let's say in the last 30 years, we've probably a million people from across Canada have become Albertans and, and at least half a million immigrants from abroad. And um, overwhelmingly, those, those folks live in urban Alberta. So what I do see is a widening gulf, quite frankly, between the political cultures of parts of rural Alberta and parts of urban Alberta. And it's the job of any leader to try to, to bridge that divide. Uh, I told the Western Standard in advance of today's session, these are my words, not yours, that you're one of the most consequential Canadian politicians over the past quarter century, and certainly one of the most consequential conservatives. Um, how do you think about your time in public life and the mark that you've left? Well, it's been 25 years, which um, according to the Supreme Court of Canada is a life sentence that is cruel and unusual punishment. So <laughs> I'm looking forward to parole. Uh, I've done my bit. You know, I, I've, I've paid my dues and then some. I've done my best. I've made my share of mistakes. Um, but, and I've learned a lot. And as I said earlier, I've matured from the days I was an opposition bomb throwing Reform Party MP. Um, but I hope that I've never lost my core convictions. And uh, I believe that will be reflected 
in, in the legacy of this government. I've just referred to some of those areas, the enhancement of school choice here, of uh, back to basics curriculum of, hey, by the way, I mean, talk about populism. Uh, we actually brought in Citizens Initiative and Recall and, and uh, the whole spectrum of, um, of democratic reforms. Um, uh, policies aligned with economic growth. And, and so I, I'm proud of what we've achieved as a government. Um, I, don't, uh, I don't leave with any regrets. Um, final question. I won't ask you about your next professional plans, um, but what books or films are you looking forward to finally reading and watching? Wow. Well, I have a, a, half, uh, I have a, have a library of unread books, and I'm really looking forward to actually have, to, to learning what a weekend is. There's this thing called an evening off. What is that? Um, and actually having some time to, to read and to write. So I might be bugging uh, geeky think tankers like you with some unsolicited pieces in the future. Well, we'll take it. Um, let me just say on behalf of everyone in this room, um, not just that we're grateful for you joining us today, um, but uh, grateful for your leadership in Big C, in the world of Big C and small C conservatism. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.